Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the New Denver Church podcast. We are studying the book of Leviticus together over the course of 13 weeks or 13 different parts, depending on how you're listening uh, to this podcast. And so each week we're doing one main message where we look at a passage of Leviticus, and then uh, each week we're also doing a supplemental podcast episode. So part 10 Uh, The last message was about chapters 21 and 22 of Leviticus, and so this is part 10b, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper into these chapters, um, and we're also just going to explore some broader concepts that these chapters touch on, and uh, hopefully it'll be helpful for you. So my name is Norton, and thanks for joining um, this journey with me and with us as a community of faith. Um, Just a quick encouragement at this point. We are about 75% of the way through Leviticus, so we are coming down the home stretch. And let me just say, there's some really good stuff in the last few chapters of Leviticus, some really important content, uh, some instructions that, that end up shaping Israel's history and their life and their community for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's some really practical lessons uh, for all of us in these last few chapters. So don't give up at this point. Uh, Hang in there. Uh, Save some energy. Um, Save some mental space. It's been a little bit like a, a, a fire hose, right, or a hydrant. I know I've given you a lot to think about, but but save a little bit more mental space and definitely save some heart space for these last few chapters cuz i just i believe there's a few things in there that are for each of us today for our lives uh, that are really really important so uh chapters 21 and 22 let's jump back into those we discussed those in the last message and they are about the priests and the tabernacle again, or the tent of meeting. Those words are interchangeable, uh, or those descriptors are interchangeable. Um, And perhaps you've continued to wonder throughout this book, why does it keep talking about these priests and this tent of meeting or the tabernacle? Why Why are these two things so central? Why does everything in Leviticus start with them? These holy priests and this holy space, and then it always seems to radiate out from there. And just when we think we've had all the instructions we can get about the priests and these rituals that happen at the tent of meeting, uh, we come to chapters 21 and 22, and there's two more chapters of tedious instructions about the priests and the rituals at the tent of meeting again. So why are these holy priests and this holy space so important? And remember, holy means separate. It means set apart. It means distinctive. So uh, first, let's talk about the space again, the tabernacle. Um, Remember, it's a tent that is set up right in the middle of Israel's camp. Uh, And there's a tendency probably for some of us to think about it a little bit like you would think of a church, right? This was just the meeting place where Israelites went to worship God. This is like where they attended church or attended synagogue. And uh, of course, that's partly true. But this space, uh, this place was was so much bigger than that. It was so much more important than that. It's not just a physical space. There's a sense that this space is the ideal. It represents the ideal. Uh, It represents a space where God's presence fills this space. It's a a space where God's presence can be fully experienced in an undiluted or unmediated way. It's a space where where everything is as it should be. Uh, You walk into this tent of meeting and there's a sense that, that everything is in its right place. Everything is ordered as it should be. Everything is good. Everything is beautiful. There's, a, there's an aesthetic appeal to this space, and you see that in all the instructions in Exodus about how to build this space. Um, there's a sense that this space, the, the tent of meeting, it's a space of peace, or, or the Hebrew word is shalom, which is a lot bigger than peace. It's sort of like everything is well and good. It's a space of justice and goodness and healing and 
harmony. It's, it's God's space. It's like God's home. It's like coming into his home and everything is good and right in his home. It's where he lives. Now, you might say, well, isn't that heaven? <laughs> I thought that was heaven in the Bible. Isn't that where God lives? Uh, where everything is good and right. And yes, yes, you're right. It is, it is. And the tabernacle is just an earthly representation of heaven. It's an earthly representation of heavenly space where God lives. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this. The writer of Hebrews says, I think it's chapter 8, that the sanctuary, um, and and that's another word sometimes used for the tabernacle or the, the tent of meeting, is a, and this is a quote, a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. So think about those two words for a second. It's a copy and a shadow of what one might experience if they were actually to go to heaven, <laughs> wherever heaven is. It's not necessarily up in the skies. It's, it's just heaven is God's space. Heaven is where God lives. If you could go into God's presence where he lives, the tabernacle is a copy and a shadow of that and what you might experience if you could go to that place. So the tabernacle is always this, this copy, this shadow, this ideal space. And because of that, it should be beautiful and ordered and kept pure and treated with the highest reverence. Um, And there's the sense that when an average Israelite goes into the tent of meeting, they get a taste of something. They're tasting God's presence in a more uh, specific and tangible way. Uh, They're tasting God's forgiveness, God's compassion, God's beauty, God's goodness, God's mercy. They're experiencing transcendence. And when they experience these things in the tent of meeting, then they carry these things into their lives and into their homes and into their work and their families and the meals at their tables and into everything else they do. So that the holiness, the distinctiveness, the the transcendence that one would experience in this sacred space at the center of the camp radiates out to the whole camp, to the entire community, so that Israel can then live as God's holy people, radiating out his presence and holiness and transcendence to the entire world. Now, I was trying to think of a parallel to the tabernacle, a parallel in our culture, um, a place or a space that is holy, that in a sense represents an ideal that we're all longing for. Uh, a place that is transcendent, or a place that is, um, I'm going to use these kind of mysterious words, a place that is like a portal to transcendence. A a place where things are as they should be. And when you go to this place, you're filled with this transcendence, this sense that this is how, how everything should be, that this space is is the ideal of how all spaces should be. And, and there's a transformative power in this space, a power that heals you in a certain way or a power that fills you in a certain way, a power that that is going to send me back into my space, wherever that is, my home or my neighborhood or my workplace or where I live, with a new power, a new sense of peace and energy and purpose. And, and, and I might call that power the Holy Spirit, right? But, but these spaces are so divinely charged that the sacred space, it does something in us and to us in ways that ordinary spaces do not. Are there any spaces like that in our culture today? Because that's what the tent of meeting space was like. And for some people, I think this might be creation itself, right? Maybe it's going to the mountains. I mean, for a lot of us in Colorado, that's what it is, right? That's what the mountains are. There's something about these mountains, the rugged beauty and the transcendence that you feel when you're you're just in the heart of nature or in the heart of the mountains, right? Um, It doesn't have to be mountains. It could be canyons. I mean, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, 
uh, there is something transcendent about that place. Um, it might be beaches. I have a friend, and for her, it's the beach. There's something transcendent about the beach for her. There's something about the waves uh, and the ocean and the movement and the rhythms and the sounds and the sand and the air and the wind and the sun, there's something about all of that that is transcendent. And so for a lot of us, uh, creation, a place in creation that is undiluted by human activity is like sacred space, right? And, And that makes sense. The Hebrew Psalms, in the Old Testament, over and over and over, talk about God's creation as a place that points to his beauty, that points to his purpose, that points to his sovereignty, his presence, his order in the world. So we can experience all those things. Sometimes in creation, that's sacred space for some people. Um, but there might be other examples that are more like the tabernacle in Leviticus, places that people of faith have actually constructed or built as sacred spaces where you can come and meet with God and experience his presence in a unique way. And remember, that's what holy is, right? Unique, distinctive, set apart. And, and as I was thinking about this, there's a place that came to mind, you know, so quickly when I was thinking about sacred space. Uh, for the last few years, some of you know this, I've, I've shared a little bit of this, but for the last few years, I've been visiting a Benedictine monastery uh, down in northern New Mexico. It's called Christ in the Desert Monastery. And there's about 40 monks that live there. And it's back in a canyon, 13 miles down a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell service there. Uh, There's really no internet. There's like one dial-up computer, (laughs) um, and that's it. And whenever I go to this monastery... Uh, I spend a few days there, and it's like a sanctuary for the soul. Because I don't have any work that I have to do there. I don't have obligations. There are no distractions. Uh, There's very little of the outside world that will intrude in. Um, I spend time with the monks who live there. I eat meals with them every day. I gather with them to pray. Uh, They gather seven times a day to pray in this beautiful chapel, this chapel that's been built out of adobe, and and it sits beneath these sheer cliffs of the canyon. Um, And and this place, it's, it's like the ideal for me, (laughs) meaning it's not my real life. Right? I can't spend months there. I mean, I have a family that I have to go back to. I have a work that I go back to. I have obligations, and all those things are good. I miss my family when I'm there. I miss work. I miss the responsibilities of my everyday life. I miss those things when I'm there. But for a few days while I'm there, there is a sense of peace, of sort of letting go of everything, of surrendering everything that I've carried in to God and handing it over to him and just spending time with him. And there's this experience for me there of the ideal. And and it's not just about the location and the place. I mean, that's a huge part of it. It's a place of beauty and remoteness and all those things. But there's also um, the community of people that are there, (laughs) Uh, which, by the way, these monks who live there, um, they're holy because they're different and distinct. They're not holy because they're more righteous than anyone else. They're not holy because they're more righteous than any of us listening. Um, They're holy because they're different. They wear these black robes all the time, so they look different. Uh, They don't have wives or families, right? Uh, But when I've talked with them, I've realized they're just normal guys, They are normal people, literally just like you and me. They're normal people who have just made a decision to live in an intentional community together in this place together. And in fact, the community of monks that live there, they're super diverse. It's really cool. The monks that live there are from all different kinds of ethnicities and backgrounds. In fact, most of them are not even white. And so it's... It's this diverse 
unique, distinct, and in some ways, ideal community, which doesn't mean it's a perfect community. I mean, they have, you know, conflict and they're like permanent roommates with 39 other people, right? So it's not a perfect community, but it's a community that that they have decided is going to be centered on Jesus and on loving one another like Jesus would. And they accept strangers and visitors and sojourners in the way Jesus would. So I always feel accepted to the fullest when I go there. And so for me, it's this space where I experience a copy and a shadow of heavenly realities. And that transforms me. It shapes me. It sends me back into my home and my life and my space with a deeper awareness of God's holiness and God's presence in all all spaces. Now, uh, in the Christian tradition, um, interestingly, monasteries have always played this role of being holy space. We don't think of it so much today, but it played a huge role of doing that in in centuries past. Uh, Cathedrals have sometimes played this role of holy or sacred space. If you've ever been to Europe, and been in some of the churches and cathedrals there, you've, you've experienced a taste of this. Just the architecture and the feeling and the soaring windows and, and the way everything is designed is to communicate transcendence. So that's behind some of it. Um, the Holy Land, right? Israel. I, I haven't actually been there myself, but every most everyone I've talked to who has been there has said it has that feel of being holy space. It's sacred or it's unique in a way that no other place is. Um, There's other places of pilgrimage that have played this role of holy or sacred space for people. Now, of course, uh, any space that is set aside as holy space can be abused. It can be misused. It can even become an idol. It can become a place to worship rather than a place to worship God. Do do you see that? It, It becomes a place that you worship rather than a place where you worship God. I mean, how many of us have seen churches become this, right? A building that starts to be worshiped rather than a place where God is worshiped. In fact, Jesus even said this about the temple in his day. Uh, The temple is the permanent structure that replaced the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And Jesus came into the temple one day in Jerusalem, and he was so upset at what it had become. It wasn't a house of prayer anymore. It It was a place where people were selling things. It had become this place of business and power dynamics and egos and exclusivity, right? And Jesus gets so angry. You probably know the story. He starts flipping tables over. In fact, it is the most angry we see him in any story from his whole life. But his anger reveals something. He has these deep emotions because the temple is a place that was meant to be set apart and holy and something so good and that original intention had been lost, right? There was something so beautiful and holy and meaningful that the temple was supposed to be, but all of that had been lost. It, it, it had become a place that was co-opted by, by selfish purposes and it, it had lost its sacred purpose, right? And so Jesus gets really angry. And of course, you see the same thing happen with Buildings and monasteries and churches and cathedrals all throughout church history. They can become objects of human worship. They can become places where greed rules or authoritarian abuse or all sorts of other things are happening that are the opposite of their original intention. In fact, even creation... This, this can happen even with creation. I, I had a friend uh, that lived in the Pacific Northwest near Seattle for many years. And uh, he spent so much time when he was living there outdoors doing all sorts of cool things. You know, camping and hiking and kayaking and climbing and mountaineering. Everything you can do in that 
part of the country, and it's a beautiful part of the country if you've ever been there. And uh, he's a follower of Jesus, and for him, the outdoors had that sanctuary, that transcendent feel, right? That that sort of, I go there to recharge, I go there to experience God in those kinds of places. And, and as I said, many of us in Colorado are the same way, right? We go to the mountains to experience to, to God and to be recharged and renewed and all those things. But my friend, as he spent more and more and more time doing all of these cool things in the mountains, he realized his whole life had started to become consumed with the outdoors, consumed with the mountains, consumed with pursuing adventure, consumed with buying gear, consumed with doing all of the coolest and newest and and latest and, and most edgy outdoor things he could possibly do. And he realized he wasn't worshiping God in the mountains anymore. He was worshiping the mountains. He was worshiping the the adventure high that he got when he went to the mountains. And this amazing place of, of pilgrimage and beauty and sanctuary and experiencing God actually had become an idol to him. And that's always the danger, right? That sanctuaries, holy spaces, sacred spaces, ideal spaces, they can become idols, They can become places that are more about ourselves than God. And perhaps that's why there's so many instructions about holy space in Leviticus. Perhaps that's why there's so many rules. And and perhaps there's a lesson of balance that we all need to hear in these instructions. And and the message is this. When it comes to any sacred space, uh, number one, be aware of the dangers, right? (laughs) Be aware of our propensity to turn anything into an idol. We can turn anything into an idol. And, you know, when I say idol, I don't mean like a little wooden carved statue. I just mean something that we worship instead of God. Something that starts to serve us. Something that is about us. Something that is no longer about something transcendent that is beyond us. And in Colorado, as somebody who loves the mountains like so many of you do, uh, this is a danger, that we need to be aware of. The mountains can be sacred space, but for a lot of us, it's really easy to turn the mountains and all the fun stuff that we do there into idols that's about us and not anything about God or transcendence. So so lesson A is be aware of the dangers, but lesson B or lesson two, I don't know which I'm using, but it is, uh, and this is the balance to the danger is, we need sacred spaces. S- sacred spaces can ground us. They can form us. They can shape us. They can give us a place for us to go where we can regularly experience transcendence in a way that's a little bit different from our normal lives. That's unique. And it's not that we cannot experience God in our normal lives or we cannot experience transcendence in our everyday lives. We can. We can. It's just that the holy and sacred spaces deepen that awareness and deepen that ability to experience it even more in our ordinary lives. Uh, One last thing to say about sacred space. In Israel, sacred space was always communal space. It was not solitary. It was not individualistic. The tabernacle was a place of communal gathering, of communal celebration, of communal prayer, of communal confession, of a communal experience of God. And it's partly why I love going to the monastery. I mean, at one level, I'm going by myself, but I'm joining a community of people, this, this, this community that, that lives there, and, 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 and you're joining in their prayers, and they're welcoming you into their communities and their meals for this time while I'm there. And, and that's partly why I love it. It's so communal. And it's partly why a community of faith The church, not the building, the church, but the community of the church that gathers at the building that we call the church once a week on Sundays to 
to be together, to pray together, to listen together. There, there's something formative that happens when we do that. That is like a mini sacred space experience that we can have weekly, right? We go to this space to be with the community, to be reminded of who God is, to experience something there that we can't experience in other spaces or in our lives so that then we we go back to our spaces and our lives. We go back with a renewed sense of faith. So that's holy space, and that's why it's so important in Leviticus. Now, let's talk about the holy priests because the community of Israel... Um, comes to holy space, the tabernacle, but they are led in the holy space by the holy priests. Now, uh, we've learned a few things about the priests already in the book of Leviticus. Uh, For starters, there's nothing really that special about them, meaning it's not like they're smarter than everyone else and that's why they're priests, or they're more righteous than everyone else and that's why they're priests, or they're more accomplished than everyone else, right? They're pretty normal guys, (laughs) and we know they're not perfect. We've read stories that show they're not perfect, Um, but they have been given a role, and they are called to take that role as priests seriously, and there's a tension there, right? You're not perfect. You're human, just like everyone else but you are also to be a model to everyone else. You have a greater responsibility than everyone else. You have been given this role and this calling and this vocation of showing others what it means to experience God and to become God's distinctive and holy people. You're not perfect, you're human, and yet you are also supposed to be a model and you have a greater responsibility, right? So chapters 21 and 22 explore that tension a little bit more, and we learn a few things in these chapters. We're not going to go back through all the verses. I'm just going to pick out a few things that I think might be helpful to think about or talk about. Uh, The first thing we learn is that priests can be married, right? So there's this passage in there about who they can marry. We learn that they... That priests in the Old Testament and in ancient Israel, they have spouses, or they can at least have spouses. They can have families. Um, This is true of uh, leaders in the early church as well. Um, When you get forward to the New Testament, you find out that the leaders in the early church were often married as well. We know Peter, um, who is often called the first pope, uh, was married. There's a story about his mother-in-law in the Bible. Um, There's instructions given to pastors and elders in the New Testament, and uh, it talks about their spouses and their families. Um, So many leaders in both the early church and priests in the Old Testament were married, which, when you stop and think about it, is a little bit different from some traditions today. Perhaps you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church And in the Catholic tradition, pastors or priests are not married. They take a vow of celibacy, uh, meaning they uh, choose to never marry. And the idea is that they would give themselves wholly to serving God and the church and the people of the church And that the energy and that the life that they would normally give to a spouse and to family, they're giving entirely to God and to the community of faith. It is a a deep and profound calling. And of course, it's a very valid calling. (laughs) Paul talks about this in in his letter he writes to the people of Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Um, He actually says, there's going to be many Christians who will never get married. And they will find their identity not in a spouse or a family like so many people do, but they will actually find their identity in serving God with their gifts and in their career and in their vocation in ways that people who have spouses and families can never serve God. And Paul literally says, this is a good thing. This is a very good thing. 
And there's every indication that Paul himself was not married and, and Jesus was not married. And so this is a, a bit of a challenge in our culture where we definitely privilege marriage and family as sort of the ultimate end-all and be-all, and uh, as, as so much greater than singleness, right? And interestingly, Paul does quite the opposite. Pa- Paul does the exact opposite. He privileges those who are single or have maybe even chosen a celibate life over those who are married and have families. And so that should be a challenge to us. Uh, when I spend time at the monastery, to go back there for a second, with the brothers who live there, they have chosen singleness. They have chosen celibacy. And I am amazed at the depth of community they experience, the depth of relationships, the depth of intimacy, the genuine family that they experience with one another, perhaps in deeper ways than some of us experience in traditional families. So so in the Christian tradition, there is this trajectory of of singleness and and celibacy that that can play a significant role. And uh, it seems like current American Christianity and views about family and singleness and all that, we don't have much space for that. And that should be a challenge to us. That, that, That should be something we should think more deeply about. Now, I say all that to say, Paul never actually links singleness and celibacy with leadership in the church. Uh, And the New Testament never links celibacy with leadership or being an elder or a pastor or any kind of priest. The Old Testament never links celibacy with leadership or with being a priest. So the idea that arose in the Roman Catholic Church um, about priests being celibate actually came many centuries after Jesus. So it is more of a tradition that has become accepted, uh, but it's not a biblical idea. It's not something found in the Bible. So uh, Leviticus chapter 21 has these passages about a priest and who a priest can marry. And uh, this is a good time to talk about another characteristic of Old Testament priests because um, all Old Testament priests were men. Uh, In Israel, only men could be priests. And really, that's just because this is a patriarchal culture. And in a patriarchal culture like ancient Israel, uh, men are the primary leaders in the home. Uh, Men are leaders in the extended family or the family clan. And men are leaders in society at large, uh, in the political decisions. And then, of course, men are leaders when it comes to the religious rituals. And it's just the way it was in that culture. And so when we come to this issue of priests, we would expect, because men are considered leaders in all these other areas, that they're going to be men as well. That's just the way it was. That's, the ex- that's really the only example we're given in the Old Testament. Um, now, there's no teaching in the Old Testament that explicitly or even implicitly suggests that men should be priests and not women because men are more spiritual than women or or men are more qualified than women or that men have some inherent ability or trait that's related to their gender that women don't have because of their gender. And so that's why men should be leaders and women shouldn't. In, In fact, you see numerous stories and times in the Old Testament where women do actually step into leadership roles when men are bad leaders. There's times women have to step in and be the good leaders because men are the bad leaders. Um, And then when you get to the New Testament, uh, you see even more women in leadership roles. Uh, You see women following Jesus. The men disciples seem to get most of the stories, but you see a fair amount of stories of women who are also part of Jesus's followers. You see women supporting him financially. Uh, you see women are the ones who are standing uh, at the the cross when Jesus is crucified, when almost all of his male disciples have abandoned him. You, you see women going to the tomb first. Uh, you see women going out and preaching the good news to men that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
So there's women preachers before there's men preachers in the New Testament. Uh, You see women deacons. You see women apostles. You see women teachers. You see women who work with Paul at church planting. Um, Now, again, to be fair, uh, more, many more of the stories about are about men, and you still see men mostly in leadership positions, in formal leadership positions in the New Testament, because first century Israel is still a patriarchal culture, just like it was in the time of Leviticus. Um, but there is a litany of examples of women leading in important ways, and, and the trajectory in the Bible um, of women growing in leadership. Uh, So that today we see that in a culture that we live in that's no longer patriarchal, right? A culture where women are serving in leadership roles at every level of society. (laughs) Women serve in leadership roles in politics, in business, in education. Um, Most churches now have come to the conclusion uh, that this is actually what the Bible teaches as well. that, That leadership has nothing to do with gender and that we do see examples primarily of men leading in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that's more about culture. Leadership has nothing to do with gender. What leadership is really about is character and gifting and calling. And so in our church and in so many others, women do lead in all of the same ways that men do. But it's important to recognize it was not that way in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, only men could be priests. Now, let's look at one more thing, um, because it talks about these priests, and it talks about who these men priests can marry uh, in Leviticus 21. Now, first I should say, um, there are not a whole lot of laws in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament where all of these laws are. Um, There's not a whole lot of laws about who an Israelite man can marry or like qualifications for marriage or any of those kinds of things. I mean, there are some laws about inheritance and property rights, and and that's because inheritance and property rights or or, or land rights are always mixed up with marriage and children and those kind of things. So there's laws about that. Um, There are some rules about what you should do if you sleep with someone before you're actually married to them. Um, There's some rules that suggest... Uh, You should not marry someone who is not an Israelite, but there's also some exceptions to those rules that are given where you could marry someone who is not an Israelite. So for the most part, if you are a typical Israelite man, you can marry anyone you want. There's not a lot of rules about who you can and can't uh, marry. But if you're a priest... There are restrictions. Leviticus 21.7 says, They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. So if you're a priest serving at the tent of meeting, uh, you cannot marry any woman who was formerly a prostitute. And this might very specifically refer to being a prostitute, or it could be more general uh, description of of a woman who is just known to be more uh, sexually promiscuous. Um, So you can't marry a woman like that, and you cannot marry a woman who has been divorced. And it's not because marrying in either of these cases would be sinful, or that you've done something wrong, or there's something about these women that is evil. Um, It's because you're a priest, And the standard is higher. And you are to be different. You are to be a model to everyone else. And there might even be a public perception issue going on here. If you, as a priest, marry a promiscuous woman, people are going to think that you're promiscuous. Or perhaps if you marry a woman who is divorced, whose marriage fell apart, whose marriage didn't work, the relationship was broken, and, and maybe it wasn't even her fault at all. But still, that will reflect on you if you marry her. And as a priest, you're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be uh, known by uh, relationships that don't fall apart. You're supposed to be known by health and integrity and wholeness and all those things. And so whatever standards there are uh, for everyone else, you are supposed to go above 
and beyond those standards, even in the eyes of sort of public perception. And then in the next section, chapter 21, verse 13, it talks specifically about the high priest. That's the leader of all the priests. And it says this, the woman that he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people. So there are many standards for normal Israelites. There's higher standards for priests. And now for the high priest, the standards are even higher. It's not just don't marry a divorced woman and don't marry a prostitute. It's if you are the high priest, you cannot marry an immigrant, a foreigner. It has to be from your own people. You cannot marry a widow. If her husband has died, you, you still can't marry her. And you have to marry someone who is known as a virgin. So for the high priest, the standard is super high. And again, the idea is you are representing an ideal, an ideal of wholeness and integrity and holiness. And so your marriage should represent that. Your relationship should represent that. Your family should represent that. So I, I, it's like the laws are saying, don't even marry a widow. <laughs> I mean, her marriage relationship was broken by death. And it was broken by no fault of her own. And maybe something tragic happened. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with sin, right? But there's still this picture of ideal. There's this picture of, of, of symbolism that you should be associated with relationships that are never broken, right? And, and this is going to apply to your entire life. And so the standards for the high priest are even higher because he is to symbolize and represent and model something for the entire community. And so what we see is a principle, I think, here. And the principle is simple. With greater authority comes greater responsibility, right? With greater authority comes greater responsibility. If you are a model in front of people, then you have to act and live like and be a model. And the New Testament picks up on this idea when it describes early church leaders. Uh, there's a couple letters Paul wrote, 1 Timothy and Titus. Um, and there's a bunch of qualities that are listed in there for early church leaders, for like pastors and elders. And uh, almost all of the qualities listed for these leaders are character qualities. And in fact, a few times Paul says that leaders are to be above reproach. I don't know if you've ever heard this term, above reproach, which means if you're one of these leaders, you live with standards that are higher than everyone else so that no one can accuse you of anything that that, that, that would reflect poorly on you or the leadership position or what you're leading, right? That you have such an important responsibility of leading and modeling in front of everyone else that, that you should live a life of character that is above reproach. Now, that doesn't mean that leaders have to be perfect <laughs> and that leaders can never make a mistake, right? If, if that's what it meant, then we would all be doomed. Um, it just means that they make choices, in their lives, in light of wisdom and in light of their leadership role. And they have the kind of character that recognizes that they are standing in front of people to model something to them <laughs> and to model a different, right? Holy, different, distinctive way of life. So with greater authority comes greater responsibility because leaders are always modeling a better way. They're always pointing to something better. A leader always stands in front of a group of people and says, this is what it means to live into God's wholeness and God's forgiveness and God's truth and God's love, right? And, and there's all sorts of practical ways that a leader can do that in their leadership and in their actions. But for the most part, they simply do that by being a model to follow. They do it through their own life and their own character qualities. And so with greater authority comes greater responsibility to do that. Now, the Bible is primarily talking about leaders in the faith community. 
Um, this sense that uh, leaders in the faith community, whether it's ancient Israel or the early church, have gifts, and they should use those gifts. And, and there's a lot more discussion about gifts in the New Testament. Um, and maybe those gifts are teaching. And so great, you should be a teacher in the church or speaking or serving or, or organizational leadership. There's all sorts of gifts that leaders in the church might use for the benefit of the people in the church. But they're also modeling a different way. And that way is the way of Jesus. And so it's not just about using your gifts. It's about also being kind and selfless and patient and compassionate and thoughtful and not greedy, right? Um, and, and not flashy. And, and there's all these lists of virtues in the New Testament that describe these things that people in faith communities should embody, the kind of character, values, and virtues they should embody if they're a leader, in addition to their gifting, right? Gifting and character. But I wonder, does this truth that great authority comes with great responsibility and that leaders lead with both gifting and character, does this truth just apply to church leaders or does it apply to all kinds of leaders? Uh, what about leaders in the business world? I mean, many of us have experienced leaders uh, in the business world and the companies we, we work where uh, these leaders have amazing gifts and are terrible models of character, <laughs> right? Maybe you have a boss that's that way. Maybe Maybe... You used to have a boss that was that way, and that's why you left. Maybe there's a manager at your company that everyone knows is that way. And that person, they get things done. I mean, they, they clearly have gifts and, and talents. They, they can accomplish a lot. But when it comes to character, they're not kind. They're not gracious. They're not even really honest. People have a difficult time working underneath them. In fact, they... People are churned through under on their team, right? Because they're not patient. They're, they're, they're not modeling something that everyone they lead wants to follow, right? And we've seen these kind of people who have a lot of gifting and no character. We've seen them destroy teams. We've seen them sometimes destroy companies. We've, maybe you've seen it destroy your division. Maybe it's destroyed your working relationship. Maybe it's destroyed your trust. We've seen that happen. It seems like character is still a really important quality, not just in the church world, but in the business world as well. Uh, what about political leaders? Should they model character? Is that important? Uh, in the 1990s, when I was first voting in elections... <laughs> The overwhelming majority of conservative Christians, um, and, and that, that would be Christians who, who say and believe they take the Bible more seriously than anyone else, right? The majority of conservative Christians said character was the number one issue when it came to, to elected leaders, when it came to presidential leadership. And that's why they did not vote for Bill Clinton, right? Because he had very questionable character. And then, of course, today, the overwhelming majority of conservative Christians who, you know, say they take the Bible more seriously than anyone else, uh, believe character is not an issue at all when it comes to presidential leadership. Because the ver person that the majority of conservative Christians voted for has, you know, exponentially greater character flaws than Bill Clinton ever had, right? So maybe conservative Christians in the 90s were wrong. I was one of them. I remember voting against Bill Clinton because I thought his character was so horrible. Maybe we were all wrong, right? Maybe we should have never criticized Bill Clinton because maybe character has nothing to do with leadership. That leaders should only be evaluated on what they can accomplish, and even if they have horrible character, right, even if they sacrifice morality and ethics for the sake of doing what we want them to do, that's the most important. Honestly, 
I think it's the exact opposite. <laughs> I, I think leadership has everything to do with character. In every law in the Bible, in every story in the Bible, in every example that the Bible gives, it paints a picture that leaders are always models and character is always central to that. And that's not just true of church life, right? As a follower of Jesus, I believe that the Bible is true of all of life and it applies to all of life. And so here's the question that I want to leave you with now that we've talked about character and politics and business and all those kind of things. Let's just get really personal as we wrap things up. What kind of leader are you? You are almost certainly a leader somewhere. You are a priest to someone, right? Maybe you've never used that word priest to think about yourself, but you are a priest to someone. You are a model to the people that you lead at work. You're a model to the people in your family. Uh, Even if you're not married or don't have kids, you're a model to the people in your extended family. You're even a model to your parents as they grow older. And you, you know, if you do have kids, you're certainly a model to them. Uh, You're a model to people that are maybe not as far along in their journey of faith as you are. You're a model to people who have not been through some experiences that you've been through. And when they go through those experiences, you're going to be a model to them. You're a priest to someone, maybe a lot of people. And some of us are formal leaders, right? In formal positions in organizations. But a lot of us, probably all of us, are informally leaders or priests in certain relationships. And Leviticus says, as a leader, you are to be holy. You are to be different. You are to point to and model a different way. And if you heard the last message and if you read chapters 21 and 22, God says, hey, don't worry about that too too much because I'll help you. I'll give you some instructions. I'll give you some guidance. I'll help you know what it means to be a priest, what it means to model, what it means to, to, to experience something from God and then share that experience and model it to other people. I'll help you know how to do that. It's found in my word. It's found in the, the collected wisdom and stories over the centuries. And so read these words. Follow these instructions. Live out these virtues, these values. Figure out your gift and your strength, but but man, character is going to be at the heart of all of it. And if you follow these instructions and you pursue those things, then I, I will make you holy. I will make you a leader worth following. Well, that's it for today. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Um, Next time, we're going to jump into chapter 23. And uh, I'm super excited about it because there's some really cool things uh, to learn. So I hope you'll keep listening. Thanks for hanging in there.